There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, we're here again for, I guess this is episode 98 now? Yes. And we should talk a little bit before we get going. You mentioned before we started recording, you have a raspy voice right now. Why is that? Yes, I do. My voice is a little bit lower than usual. Just finishing up a little boat with COVID, finally. I've joined the club and luckily it wasn't too bad and coming out of it. Yeah. Welcome to the party. Well, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Nice to be invited. I don't know about you, but when I had COVID and not commenting on like some people had a really rough time with COVID. They've had a really bad experience. But when I had COVID and my family had COVID, it was just kind of like a cold. I was just happy to have it over. That's right. And you're right about how differently it affects different people. I was just talking to another friend whose 28-year-old son had a really nasty case of it. And his 75-year-old mother-in-law basically had a very mild case. So it does affect everybody differently. And even in my own household, my wife had it much, much worse than I did. So there you go. But thank goodness, it's largely in the past now. And I've had three vaccinations and one case of COVID. So the immune system should be firing on all cylinders. Bulletproof. You're bulletproof, Greg. (laughs) Well, let's get into today's episode. Last week, we talked about bonds. And the reason we talked about bonds, and we sent out something by email a couple weeks ago, to the clients we deal with is that bonds are on everybody's mind these days because it's been a rough start to the year for bonds. And the question we've been getting from people is, well, I understand the stock market's down because of whatever, COVID, Ukraine, other items, but why are my bonds down? And we spent a good amount of time last week talking about how during times of hyper volatility, bonds will trade in the same direction as stocks for a short period of time. And this is evident from different parts in history. So for anybody that's interested in that conversation, please go back and listen to the last one. Because today we're moving on. That's right. Although what we're talking about today is absolutely relevant to the bond discussion. For sure. We are talking about mean reversion to start. So that's right. why don't you kick us off, Greg? So mean reversion or called reversion to the mean by sometimes, it's basically a theory used in finance that suggests that price volatility in different asset classes and historical returns eventually will revert to a long run mean or average level during the entire data set or set of periods that we're looking at. And so this mean level can appear in a number of different contexts. So you can talk about economic growth, the volatility of a stock, a stock's price to earnings ratio, or the average return of an entire industry sector. And so let's talk about a little bit about the basics. So the Mean reversion involves retracing a condition back to a long-run average state. So the concept assumes that like a level that strays far from the long-term norm or trend will again return, reverting to its understood state or what's called a secular trend, which is just a long-term trend. Let's give an example of this, Greg, a weather example. 
on average, the weather in Calgary in March is what, like 10 degrees or something like that? Sure, something like that. However, at different times, you can have 25 degrees or you could have minus 15. But to your point, over the long term, it tends to revert back to 10 degrees Celsius. That's right. So even though you can go through periods of time where, as you say, in, in stock market investing, we've all experienced going through periods of time where the markets do a lot better than they have on average, or a lot worse than they have on average, they do tend to revert back over time. So the theory itself then leads to investment strategies that involve the purchase or sale of stocks or other kinds of securities whose recent performances have differed greatly from their historical averages. However, particularly if you're talking about investing in a single company, a change in returns could also be a sign that a company no longer has the same prospects that it once did in which case it's probably less likely that mean reversion would occur. And so it's one of the reasons why we tend to focus more on markets as a whole as opposed to individual companies. So percentage returns and prices aren't the only measures considered when you're looking at mean reverting. So interest rates or even PE ratios of a company can be subject to the same kind of phenomenon. And we're going through some of that right now with interest rates. Because they're going up right now? Is that what you're talking about? back to what used to be considered normal levels for interest rates, we went below those normal levels many years ago, and it's taken a long time to come back. And now we seem to be getting back more towards those kinds of levels. Same with inflation, by the way. So the mean reversion theory is used as part of an analysis or statistical analysis of market conditions, and it can be part of an overall trading strategy. And what really applies extremely well too is the idea of what everybody wants in investing and that's buying low and selling high. Oh, the exact opposite of what most people do. That's right. And so the hope is to identify abnormal activity that will theoretically revert to a normal pattern in some point. And mean reversion has also been used in options pricing to describe the observation that an asset's volatility will fluctuate around some long-term average. And one of the fundamental assumptions of many options pricing models is that an asset's price volatility is mean reverting. We've talked a little bit about options trading, but not too much. Not many of our clients get too actively involved in that. Well, I think for a reason, the stock market and the bond market are difficult enough, let alone adding in other layers like options. Exactly. So mean reversion trading in stocks tries to capitalize on extreme changes in the pricing of a particular security or index assuming that it will revert to its previous state. And you can use that theory, apply it to both buying and selling, because it allows traders, if you're so inclined, or even long-term investors to profit on unexpected upswings and to save on abnormal lows to avoid those kinds of things. Let's look at abnormal periods, for example. So let's say the S&P 500, I think its long-term average going back almost 100 years, is about 8% a year. Is that right? Something in that Eight to nine. Yeah. Going back to 1926, I think. That's right. So when you go look at the period back in the starting in 2000 to 2009, I mean, that 10-year period, the S&P 500, the US market actually returned negative 0.9% per year over that entire 10-year period. And they call that the lost decade, right? That's the lost decade. So by all arguments, that was an absolutely unusual period relative to the long-term average returns. And then what happened since 
2010 to 2020, I believe the market returned something like 15%, which essentially made up for the lost decade and brought the long-term returns on U.S. stocks back to their long-term trend of about 8 to 9% a year. That just gives you some examples of when market returns can be abnormal for a period of time. And unfortunately, we can't exactly predict how long that period will be. But it just so turned out that at the beginning of this century, it lasted for about 10 years. There are some limits to that. And one is the return to the normal pattern isn't actually guaranteed because an unexpected high or low could indicate a shift in the norm. And those events that would result in a shifting of the norm or the average could include, but aren't really limited to, new product introductions or new developments on the positive side or things like recalls or lawsuits on the negative side. So there certainly can be some things that will maybe change the trajectory of the mean. And an asset could experience mean reversion, even the most extreme event. But as with most market activities, there's very few guarantees about how particular events will or will not affect the overall appeal of particular securities. And we talked about that in relation to what does a war in Europe mean for equities and all sorts of other things? So mean reversion is something that is real and identified, but not guaranteed in any particular time frame. Yeah. And I want to talk about how it is related to, I don't know, the market and specific fund managers that are seen as outperformers in different times. So if we look at sort of evaluating the past performance of a company, I'll get into who they are in a second. There's a woman portfolio manager named Kathy Wood, and she's the founder of ARK Invest. Now, her experience in the investment world goes back to 1977. So she's been around a while, Greg. So she joined Capital Group as an assistant economist. So obviously a very educated, intelligent person. She went on to work as an economist, analyst, and portfolio manager at a number of different investment firms before starting her own investment company called ARK Invest. Now, that was back in 2014. So this would have been after the lost decade. This was during the the roaring 2010s or something like that, whatever you want to call it. So the strategy of her company was to invest in companies involved in disruptive innovation. I would think of that as like technology. So her flagship fund, which is, I can't remember what it's called. It's ARKK. ARK Innovation Fund. The ARK Innovation Fund has roughly about $12.5 billion invested in it. And it is an exchange-traded fund that you can buy and sell on the U.S. markets. So that's a lot of money, $12.5 billion. So it's attracted all of this money because it has had some very good returns. However, not in the last two years. (laughs) So in the last one year, that fund... Now, in fund terms, we talk about fund flows. So when a company is attracting money... It has positive fund flows. When a company's losing money, it has negative fund flows. So it has lost or had negative fund flows of $750 million or so dollars. That's a pretty significant amount of money to flow away from your fund in a year. So the question is, why is that? Because it has to be based around performance. Now, during the early stages of the pandemic, Greg, you remember the pandemic? I do. And just as I was trying to forget it, as I mentioned, I came down with a case of COVID. So yeah, it's all fresh to me now. (laughs) It's it's like you're back in March of 2020. Well, in March of 2020, or in the year of 2020, this fund actually returned around 156%. 
which obviously attracted a lot of attention. And that's where you saw billions and billions of dollars flow into it. And so it caught the eyes of many investors and it just led to a large amount of money going towards it. Like that's what happens when you have things in the headlines like a fund has returned way more than the market. However, after that massive outperformance in 2020, which was based on the results of basically tech companies that they were invested in, the results have been much less stellar, like worse than stellar. So over the three-year period, so that's 2020, 2021, and 2022 year to date, the average return is 34.44%. Sounds pretty good. That sounds good. Except there's a difference in what they call the average or arithmetic return and what's called the geometric return. Okay, so arithmetic returns can be thought of as the expected return of an asset class over a period of time. It's like the average. So if you do 100% in one year and 0% in year two, your average over the two years is 50%. Geometric returns are actually what we would call more likened to real returns because they include volatility. So as I mentioned, the arithmetic return of Ms. Wood's fund was 34.44%. Now this is as of the time of this recording. However, the geometric return was only 11.13% over the same three years. That's like an annualized return. If you had invested $100 at the beginning of that three-year period, you'd end up with an average annualized return of 11% a year. Now, how does this relate to what you were talking about earlier, mean reversion? Well, let's talk about how the S&P 500 did, because a lot of people view the S&P 500 as the market. So the market's arithmetic return or average return over those three years was 12.84%, way lower than the arithmetic return of ARC. But the geometric return for the S&P 500 was actually 12.06%, which is actually almost a whole percentage point higher than ARC's geometric return. So the question would be, well, what do you want? Do you want more regular stable returns or do you want sort of hit it out of the park once and have really bad returns for a few years and hopes to hit it out of the park again. So that's a huge difference. So I call that mean reversion in that Miss Woods Fund grossly outperformed in 2020 and has grossly underperformed since. And its geometric return has basically come back down to what the market's done. So even though an investor might have missed out on a rate of return of 156% or more in 2020, which Greg is like 140% better than what the S&P 500 did in that same year, the geometric return over the three-year period was actually higher for the market investor. And also that market investor had a whole lot less volatility. So the outperformance of ARK in 2020, it's been corrected and is experiencing what we would call mean reversion in that their performance has come back close to the average performance of the market. Now, this phenomena is not a phenomenon. As you mentioned at the beginning of our recording, mean reversion happens all the time. It's because things are very cyclical. You and I have the saying we've used over the years, and it says, on average, we're all average, making an average number of good decisions and an average number of bad decisions. And to me, that epitomizes mean reversion. Exactly. Because just because somebody did really well one year, the problem is how do you replicate that year over year? And look, some people, some of the listeners might say, well, you're cherry picking the last three years. Let's go back over the last eight years, back to 2014. And I can tell you that there have been two really good years of performance with that fund out of eight. That means that six years, it's underperformed the benchmark, but two years, it's got way higher returns. 
listen, the goal of today's discussion is not to pick on Kathy Wood. She's an excellent portfolio manager with 45 years of investment experience behind her. And I think the key thing is that what we're seeing is that by focusing on one area of the market, her stated objective is to invest in disruptive technology. And those kinds of technologies, they were doing pretty well prior to the pandemic, but they got a quantum boost when the pandemic hit because they were operating in the sweet spot for what you would expect to happen in a global economic shutdown. And that is people working from home and healthcare companies developing vaccines for a global pandemic virus. And it could not have been better positioned for what happened during 2020. We've talked in the past about Bill Miller, the man who outperformed the S&P 500 for 15 years straight. It's not that he became stupid after he had been brilliant for all those years. It's the market cycle turned against him. And that's what happened. And it didn't just happen to Kathy Wood and the Eric Innovation Fund. It happened to every other technology sector fund that invested in those types of companies. And the reasons for why did it turn around? Was it rising interest rates, which have a big impact on those long duration type technology stocks? I mean, there could be any number of reasons. And it doesn't matter because... As we've talked in the past, you can't really predict those. But what it highlights is the need to be aware of past performance. Both in Canada and the US, we're all required to put a disclaimer that past performance is not indicative of future results. But that's the problem is that when people see those headlines of a performance of 156%, it's hard to ignore that headline. Exactly. And it actually makes us want to be part of it. We think, well, why can't I get 156%? I have another friend who you know who's a fund manager, and he has a saying that he says, fear is transitory and greed is part of the human soul. I don't know if you fully buy into that, but it is an interesting way to look at it. So when we see outperformance, I think at our core, it creates some envy. Not because we want it to, but it's just part of our makeup. So the inverse thing I would say, Greg, is happening to the bond market right now, where the headlines are talking about as you mentioned, inflation and interest rates and negative returns and bonds. And it makes people want to run from bonds. Like those are the questions we've been getting for the last few weeks, which is why we've spent a lot of time on it. But if you think about mean reversion, if I told you that in that same time period you mentioned, like I can't remember, 1926 to 2021, the S&P 500 did eight to 9% a year. What do you think the bond market did in that same period, Greg? I'm not sure, Colin, but I would think it was up in the 5 to 7% range. Am I close? Well, you know, because it's written right in front of you. It's 5.59% per year for the last same time period. So it's just that the last 12 months, I looked at some data coming out of the Stern Business School at New York State University, which is, I would think, a pretty reputable school. It shows the return of government bonds. Now, this is up to the end of 2021. This does not include 2022 and 2022 actually has not been a good year. It was negative 4.42% for government bonds and for corporate bonds, positive, but only 0.93%. So if we believe in mean reversion, which I think we do, then the best thing to do if you're a bond investor is to ignore those negative returns in bonds right now, because we think that those returns will revert back to the mean, which is call it five to 6% at some point. Is that a fair statement or is that? Absolutely. 
I've looked at some of the historical bond market returns. We talked about how few negative years there's been in the bond markets, but one year that I was quite aware of, back in 1994, interest rates went up very rapidly in a short period of time. I think they jumped 2% in less than a year. And the Canadian bond market, the universe index, returned something, I believe it was about negative 4.9%. It was exactly that number. I know that number off the top of my head. And that was a very bad year for bonds, obviously. And when the stock market goes down 4.9%, it's just kind of like another day at the market. And when bonds go down 4.9% a year, bond traders are jumping out of windows. Yeah, the sky's falling. But if you looked at the return on bonds, the universe index in 1995, it was about 20%. And so that reversion happened very rapidly after that very negative year for bonds. And by the way, we're not suggesting that next year, bonds will return 20% because, of course, the overall starting level of the yields and things back in 1994 was very different. But really, just to make the point that things can turn around, they can turn around slowly or they can turn around quickly, but usually they will mean revert over time. Yeah. And they're only obvious after the fact. It's kind of like when ARC returned over 150% in 2020, we can look back and say it was because of their investments in things like technology. Like I believe Tesla added a great deal of return to that 156% in that time period. Not only that, they had a number of biotech and genomics companies, which did extremely well in 2020 as well. But of course, it's obvious now that with work from home measures due to a pandemic, that those biotech companies and technology stocks would rise and they did. But if you truly believe in market timing, which I don't think either you or I do, because you're not looking back, you're trying to look forward. Looking back is easy. Looking back and saying, well, this is what occurred is like looking at yesterday's weather. Big deal. That's right. But what's going to happen in the next three days is what I want to know. Yeah, exactly. So if you and I can agree that market timing is really hard to do, I would almost call it futile. The question for investors is, well, what can you do? Like, what if you do at your core believe in not just a purely passive strategy of investing in the S&P 500, but you want to pick some themes or you want to pick some sectors? Greg, what can those investors do in a way that protects them, but also gives them the ability to earn some more? That's where we get into what's called a core and satellite investing strategy. And basically, it's just a model, the core satellite strategy. It's just a model for structuring a portfolio between two parts. One, which is the core, an efficient, diversified, and long-term portfolio. And secondly, an opportunistic or more short-term investments, which would be the satellites. So the concept here is it balances an investor's need for some sort of risk-controlled and disciplined investment with the desire to try to capitalize or exploit market opportunities in particular sectors or themes and we're trying to outperform the market as a whole. Hey, Greg, I was going to ask you about that just real quick. Is it Saturn or Jupiter that has like, I don't know, 20 moons or something? Do you remember this? Jupiter, I believe, but don't quote me on that. If I had to visualize this, I'm thinking, okay, Jupiter is obviously a very big planet. That's your core. And then you've got these 20 some odd moons rotating around it. And those would be your satellites. So they're smaller parts. Exactly. That's pretty good, hey? Not bad, yeah. (laughs) Good visual there, Colin. (laughs) So the core portfolio is going to be composed of the broad asset classes. So you're going to have stocks, 
bonds, maybe cash, and real estate, and ideally in the form of low-cost funds or ETFs. And that obviously would be the kind of thing that you and I have talked about a lot, just having a well-diversified strategy. The percentage that we allocate to the different assets obviously is driven by the investor's risk and return criteria, trade-offs, as well as their long-term financial plan, which obviously drives a lot of those asset allocation decisions, but clearly emphasizing a very diversified approach. And so because it's invested in broadly diversified investment vehicles, what you're basically looking for is market-like returns within asset classes. And we've talked in the past about factors of return and trying to outperform by looking at equity factors that are associated with higher expected returns. But in general, we're trying to get market returns, maybe plus a little by factor investing. So getting market-like returns maybe doesn't sound like a particularly ambitious or impressive goal, but actually matching the returns of the market as a whole can be difficult for many investors because of some of the pitfalls of behavioral actions and all that part of being human that we've talked about a lot. We've spent a lot of time on behavioral finance with good reason, because we need to understand why we make these decisions. Like when you see those headlines or whatever, why did I buy that? Why did I sell that? Or why do I feel like I need to participate in that? Exactly. And as we've talked a lot in the past too, frankly, if we just captured every percent that the market has returned over time, we'd all be pretty happy because the markets in the long run have done very well for investors that stay invested. But as we talked about the behavioral side of investing, human nature works against investors in many cases, causing them to trade at the wrong time, usually buying at market peaks and selling at market bottoms. And again, we've talked about that a lot. But by segregating and maintaining a core portfolio of assets that are rebalanced based on predetermined objective factors like fixed weights or a consistent asset allocation strategy, it's easier to adhere to those long-term disciplined investment and retirement plans. And most importantly, we want to make sure that, as you and I also have always talked, that we make sure that we manage this core portfolio at the lowest cost possible while getting the best diversification and exposure that we want. So if we looked at Kathy Wood's ARC fund, I always forget what it's called again, ARC what? ARC Innovation Fund. Innovation Fund. We could say if somebody came and said, I really want to invest in this fund because I believe in this disruptive technology that they're investing in, we'd say, okay, that's fine. Have your core set up, which would be your, firstly, your asset allocation, how much should be in stocks, how much should be in bonds. And then from that core, own the market or something similar to the market. And then if you wanted to invest in ARC Innovation Fund, it would be a satellite position. Exactly. And in this case, the ARC Innovation Fund would be a perfectly appropriate satellite investment because it is a diversified fund. You're not just selecting one stock or one sector, in fact, because the ARC Innovation Fund really combines a bunch of different subsectors of technology. So, for example, you mentioned Tesla is one of the big holdings in the fund, but there's also biotech or genomics companies, there's digital finance companies. So, a whole range of disruptive technologies are included in that basket in the ARC Innovation Fund. For investors that want to seek that what we call alpha, we've talked about alpha in the past. It's a finance term which is meant to describe outperforming the market. Alpha is extra return. And a satellite investment can basically be any investment that satisfies an investor's 
appetite or whim. Some people might buy an individual stock like Apple or Amazon or something. They might buy silver or nickel mining ETFs, or they might even buy art or GICs or whatever it is that they want as part of the satellite. But for most investors, the core portfolio is their primary retirement savings or long-term savings, while the satellites are a ways to speculate or pursue their financial dreams or other things. And the satellite, I think for us, as I say, we encourage people to invest thematically according to their own personal interests or beliefs, as long as it's, let's say, subordinate to the core and pursued only after the core portfolio was adequately funded. It's kind of like building the pyramid. The base of the pyramid is the core. And as you get closer to the top, then that can include more of your more speculative type investments. Now, Greg, we're only going to have a minute here before we got to wrap it up for today. But so if we think of the core, I would say, I usually recommend that people have maybe 90% invested in a core. And if they want to have satellites, it would be five to 10% at the most. That's right. And I think one of the reasons to think about that is if you look at, I was looking at sort of the breakdown of the sectors and the major market indexes, the S&P 500, information technology is about 28% of that market. And communications, which would include like the telcos and the other companies, is another 10.8%. So, you know, you've got almost 40% of the US market already in technology and communications. And so if you own the US market as a core holding, and then you add another 10%, well, you're now taking your weighting in those two sectors up basically to 50%. So it's becoming a pretty large chunk. So the idea of thematic or this kind of core satellite investing is to overweight a part of the market that you expect will do better. But you have to keep in mind that those sectors that you're investing in are already reflected in the market as a whole. So anybody that owns the S&P 500 already has pretty good exposure to technology, even before adding an extra satellite level to it. And you also got to be careful what you're considering technology. There's companies out there. Now, full disclosure, any company we're mentioning here, we're not recommending. We're just using it as an example. Uber. Is Uber a transportation company or is it a tech company? That's a debate. Is Skip the Dishes, which isn't a publicly traded company, but would it be same thing? Is it food delivery or is it a technology company? I don't know, actually. Well, and I think a lot of them consider themselves technology companies. But on the other hand, they're just using technology in order to distribute goods. I guess it's an interesting question. Just one last comment. When I took a look at the sectors in the Canadian market, certain sectors like healthcare, which in the US is 13.5% of the market, is under 1% of the Canadian market. And energy, which is 13% of the Canadian market, used to be much higher, is only 2.25% of the US S&P 500. So just another argument for being diversified geographically, because just by having US investments for a Canadian investor, you now have much better exposure to technology and healthcare than you would by being solely invested in Canada. So those satellites are going to change based on where you are probably. So if you live in Toronto or New York, your satellites are probably financial companies or fintech companies. If you live in Calgary or Houston, your satellites are probably energy companies, just as an example. All right, we better wrap it up there for today. Any parting thoughts? Just the concept that markets can be mean reverting, whether it's entire markets or subsectors of the markets. So to be aware of it. And frankly, our regular rebalancing that we do in portfolios 
essentially capitalizes on that by selling things that have done relatively better and buying more things that have done relatively poorer. And that's the whole concept of rebalancing the portfolio on a regular basis. Right on. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. You bet. We'll see you next time. Okay. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.